Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the first chapter. While you're turning there, let me just uh, uh, acknowledge that this is the first Sunday after Pentecost. It is Trinity Sunday. Uh, And what I want to encourage you to do as you hear this passage read, as you um, listen to me read it and, and as you follow along, what I want to encourage you to do is, is look for the Trinity. This is a kind of a Where's Waldo exercise. Um, but I want you to look for the Trinity. We've been praying to a triune God. We have confessed what we believe about a triune God. And what I want you to see is the work of the triune God for you. For you. So hear the word of God. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Vero Beach. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Jesus We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 22 sermons on the 12 verses, verses 3 to 14. So we'll be here for a while. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, somehow break through the clouds, break through the resistance, break through the dullness, the coldness, in our hearts, uh, please, Lord Jesus, set before us the wonder of the grace and glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Do it by your Spirit for our good and for your glory, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. It is a Trinity Sunday. Um, I don't know how the church uh, came to have this celebration. Um, but I'm going to make a guess. I, I don't know. I should have Googled Trinity Sunday and learned whatever I could learn about Trinity Sunday, but I didn't do that. 
Um, so I, I don't know exactly when Trinity Sunday began to be observed uh, in the church, in much of the church, lots of places throughout the world. This, uh, this occasion where the church focuses on this very distinctive, incomprehensible doctrine that the one God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not three different gods, but one God, not three parts to one God, not three different modes of existence. One day he's the Father, the next day he's the Son, the next day he's the Holy Spirit, but eternally one God in three persons, incomprehensible, unfathomable, but clearly taught in the scriptures. When the church started doing this, I don't know, but here's my guess. Think back across the last several months and think of the things that we've celebrated, the things that the church really does celebrate, the things that the church recognizes as being acts in this unfolding drama, this this work that God is accomplishing in the midst of history. You know, it begins with Advent. We, We celebrate the coming of the eternal God into the midst of our world. We, we celebrate the incarnation, the birth of the second person of the Trinity, and that birth leads then to a life of obedience, a, a perfect life, uh, a life of obedience lived for those who haven't lived lives of obedience. You know, I, I try to stress this with you, that, that the work of Jesus for us is more than just his death as a substitute on the cross, his His life is a substitutionary life. He lives a life that you've not lived so that he can die a death which I deserve to die, but which because he has died that death, I don't have to die. But instead, I get the life. I get the life that he has secured by his life of perfect obedience, a life that is pleasing to the Father. So we celebrate the the incarnation, and we celebrate the life of Christ. And then we do come to this period in in the history of the world, this sort of focal point of the the history of the world where this complex of things happens, and it happens in a relatively short period of time, but it has profoundly and forever radically changed the whole course of human history, the life of obedience leading to a death, the death of an itinerant preacher in an obscure place, where he is mocked by the crowds around him, scourged by Roman soldiers, and then impaled upon a cross. Taken down from the cross, placed in a tomb, and then on the third day after his death, this stunning and remarkable thing happens. The tomb is open. The door is open. The stone has been rolled away, and this one who has died is alive again. He is raised, but it doesn't end there. Forty days later, after his death, he ascends. He is enthroned. That's the significance of the the ascension. He is enthroned at the right hand of his father. The right hand of the father is a place of honor and authority and privilege and power. He's the king of kings. He is ruling and reigning. He has ascended and he has been enthroned. But that isn't the end of the story either. From that place of glory, he has poured out his spirit upon the church. And why has he done that? Why does Jesus fulfill the promise of his Father? Why do the Father and the Son together pour out the Spirit upon the church? There are lots of answers to that. It's like the colors of a rainbow. It's a, it's a multifaceted answer. But here's what's at the center of it. The reason that the Father and the Son pour out the Spirit upon the church is not so that you can have a quiver in your liver. 
although you get a quiver. Actually, that's kind of at the end of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. The quiver in the liver is the down payment. It's the deposit. It's the first taste. It's the first fruits. But here is why. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, pours out His Spirit upon the church. He said it at the end of Luke 24, so that the church might be clothed with power. And why is the church clothed with power? The church is clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit so that the risen, reigning, ascended King of glory might press His kingdom ever more widely and ever more deeply into the hearts of more and more people to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's so that his kingdom is more fully realized. It's so that the king, through the church and by the heralding of the gospel, might reclaim what belongs to him. That's why he gives the spirit, ultimately. Now you think about that whole sequence of things. From Advent, through the Passion, through the death of Christ, through His resurrection, His ascension, and then the outpouring of the Spirit. Here's my answer to the question. Why does the church celebrate Trinity Sunday? It's because they're not finished celebrating. You know? It's like, has anybody ever been disappointed by a football game that goes into overtime? It makes you a little nervous because you don't want your team to lose. Has anybody, was anybody who watched the Boston Celtics and the Chicago Bulls, who watched those games, sorry, it's athletic stuff, I'm sorry, all of those games that went into overtime, was anybody disappointed? No, yeah, well, yeah, the Bulls lost, and so the Bulls fans were disappointed at the outcome, but nobody's disappointed when a football game goes into overtime, when a basketball game, they think we got our money's worth. The church is saying, let's go into overtime. Let's not be done with this celebration. Let's have one more week of celebration whereby we celebrate the work of the triune God in accomplishing the salvation of his people. Now, you say, okay, Mike, that's all well and good. Celebrations, having parties. But get your head out of the clouds. Get your head out of the clouds. We've got marriages that are in trouble here. We've got a culture that's deteriorating all around us. We've got a government we don't trust. Well, some of us don't. Some of us do. You know, whatever. We've got all all kinds of issues and problems from very personal things to cultural things to broadly broadly considered struggles and anguishes and pains and everything else. Now, here's my response to that. I understand all of that, and it sounds very, very much like life in Ephesus. It sounds very, very much like life in Ephesus. You worry about your government Worry about whether we're ever going to get into that building? You wonder? You worry about your government? Remember, Nero is on the throne in Rome. Nero. Remember Nero? 
You have issues with your government? Remember, Nero is the one who used Christians as torches to light his gardens. Remember, Nero is the one who was probably responsible for burning half of the city of Rome just so that he could look like a savior by rebuilding it, but rebuilding it through taxation, taxing the people in order to rebuild the capital city. You got issues with your government? So did the Ephesians. You worry about a deteriorating economy? The Ephesians lived in a city that had been a prominent port city, but they'd crested the hill. They were on the downside. There was a river that fed into the harbor, and they didn't have dredging equipment. They didn't have Jim Davis, the director of public works for Indian River County, calling some dredging company up in Michigan, having them send these big boats down to the harbor to clean all of the silt out of the harbor. They didn't have that stuff. The harbor is filling with silt. The boats can't get into the harbor. They can't unload stuff. They can't put stuff on. The economy is on a downward slide in Ephesus, my friends. You worry about cultural erosion. You worry about deterioration. Look, the days of Julius and Augustus Caesar are in the rearview mirror. The days of the Pax Romana are still in place, but you can feel the tectonic plate shifting beneath your feet. And there's erosion and things are changing. And it's not Julius Caesar, it's not Augustus, it's Nero who's on the throne. You worry about decay of of other kinds, you worry about other kinds of deterioration, you worry about you worry about being opposed, you worry about being persecuted, you worry about being out of favor as Christians with a surrounding culture. Paul's under house arrest in Rome. Paul refers to wrestling with beasts in Ephesus, whether literal beasts in the theater or spiritual beasts because of the encroaching spiritual darkness in Ephesus. Serious conflict. And what about marriages and and families and and kids and and other kinds of relationships, relationships in the marketplace? So he's going to talk about all of that stuff. He's going to talk about marriage in Ephesians 5. He's going to talk about family in Ephesians 6. He's going to talk about slaves and masters. He's going to talk about relationships, but look at where he starts. See? This man is a pastor. He spent perhaps as long as three years in Ephesus. He loved these people. He knew their needs. The elders from Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 wept at the prospect that they would never see Paul again. He's a pastor. He loves them. He's preached publicly. He's done Tuesday's table. He's done the Women's Refuge Bible study. Much better than I've done those things. He's taught them, not only publicly, but house to house. He's discipled individuals. He knows these people. He loves these people. And as a pastor, the first thing that he wants to talk to them about, the thing that he wants to remind them of, is that the Trinity, the infinite 
personal God who is really there. The infinite personal God, the triune God, is the God of their salvation. That's where he starts with them. As he writes this letter from prison to people whom he loves in the midst of the very same kinds of circumstances in which you find yourselves. Listen again to what he says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12. For the praise of his glory. Verse 14. To the praise of his glory. Repeatedly throughout this passage, the focus of the apostle is on the work of God for these Christians and how reflecting upon that work of God elicits from him and from them recurring praise. Praise cascading down across this passage. As you look at this passage... It really is Trinitarian in structure. And these words of praise, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the praise of his glorious grace, for the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, serve as parentheses demarcating each of the persons of the Trinity in his particular function in accomplishing the salvation of God's people. It's there. It's a very clearly considered and thought out theological statement for the benefit of people who are in distress and who have particular needs. He begins with praise. At the end of verse 6, there is praise. At the end of verse 12, there is praise. At the end of verse 14, there is praise. And again, that praise provides lines of demarcation for the work of each of the persons of the Godhead in accomplishing the salvation of a people. Why is the Father to be praised? That's verses 3 through 6. Why is the Father to be praised in the first place? Why is the Father, your Father, the infinite and eternal God, the creator of the whole universe, utterly content completely satisfied in himself, the Father delighting in the Son, the Father delighting in the Son and in the Holy Spirit, the Father in his delight in the Son, knowing perfect fellowship with his Son and with the Holy Spirit, experiencing infinite joy. Why is your Father to be praised? Three reasons. Again, Lloyd-Jones preached 22 sermons on these verses. Obviously, we're going to skate across the surface of three reasons. Because he chose you. Because he has a purpose for you. And because he intends to be praised by what he has done for you. Why is the Father to be praised? He's to be praised because he chose you. He chose you. He chose you. He set his affection upon you. Now, I said earlier before the sermon that if we're ever going to understand the cross of Christ, if we're ever going to understand the purpose of God, if we're ever going to understand this unfolding drama 
of redemption. We've got to take sin seriously. And Paul reminds the Ephesians who they were. He reminds them who they were. This is who you were, he says. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 4. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Don't you love how Paul the pastor, as he speaks to the Ephesians, doesn't differentiate himself from the Ephesians? He starts by pointing out the fact, reminding them of the fact that they were dead in their transgressions and sins. That they were dead, imprisoned, in bondage because of the way they used to walk according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But look in verse 3 how he shifts the focus from them to himself. It isn't just true of you, it's true of me. I remember who I was. I've said this to you before. I don't wear this black robe because I'm different. In fact, when we purchased this robe for me, I specifically asked the manufacturer to put red crosses on the lapels, on these panels. Because every time you look at me, I want you to remember about me that the gospel I seek to preach to you is a gospel that I need before you need it. I need this cross because of what I was. This is who we were, Paul says. Dead in transgression and sin, held in its bondage, held in its grip. But notice the language that he uses. It's language of death and life simultaneously. He says we were dead, but he says we were walking around. If you've seen the film, it's one of my favorite films. I mention it periodically. If you've seen the 1975 version of of Dracula with Frank Langella, there's a riveting and captivating scene in which Mina, the daughter of Abram von Helsink has been buried in the ground. And Abram von Helsink, who is the man of faith in the film, wants to find his daughter, wants to dig up her grave so they can drive a wooden stake through her heart. Because you see, it is death that will lead ultimately to life for Mina. And when he goes down into the tombs, he encounters Mina, blood-red, hot eyes, drooling, foaming at the mouth. She's supposed to be dead, but she isn't. She is alive. She is living death. And she preys on what is alive. And my friends, that is what sin does. It preys on what is alive. It promises life just like Dracula, and it produces death. I want to say to folks, I want to plead with folks who were resistant and reluctant to come to Christ, but who know in their heart of hearts that they are unhappy, they are miserable, they are not satisfied, and many times they are in despair. I want to say to them, how is it working for you? 
How is it working for you to be your own prisoner? How is it working for you to be the slave of death? That's what we were. We were Mina. We were living death. And Paul says a little bit later in verse 5 in Ephesians 2, that God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together, made us, us, you see, himself. He made him alive. God made me alive. He did it in the spring of 1971. And he made the Ephesians alive and he made the Apostle Paul alive. And why did he make Paul alive? And why did he make these Ephesian believers alive? Why are they alive and other people are still dead? They are alive because God purposed before the foundation of the world to make them to be alive. Who had no power of life in themselves. Who had no capacity to produce life. They were dead, and he made them alive. He made them alive because he first had chosen them, set them apart in the mystery of his electing grace. And why did he do it? Paul says it in verse 4 of chapter 2. He did it because he loved you. He did it because he loved you. And you say, why did he love you? Why did he love me? Why did he love me? Why did he love you? And you know what the answer is. Because he loved you. He loved you because he loved you. Because he loved you. And his love is wed to his mercy, and his mercy and his love converge and fix their laser-like attention on particular sinners. Look, I understand. I understand the questions you wrestle with. What about him? What about her? What about them over there? But you see, the more I come to understand sin, the more I come to understand the depth of my need, the more the question begins to shift, doesn't it? It shifts away from, why not him? Why not her? It shifts powerfully and dramatically in the direction of the question, why me? Why me? God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made you alive. And he made you alive because he chose you he chose you for reasons, ultimately, that he only fully knows and understands himself. But certainly, that his grace might be put on display in the lives of helpless, rebellious sinners kept in bondage. Sometimes I will hear people say that I am loved because I am in Christ. This is subtle. It's very subtle. Bear with me in this subtlety. Sometimes I will hear people say that I am loved because I am in Christ. That God loves me because he sees me in Christ. 
But no, that isn't it. That's not what the text says. It's interesting as you read the text that those recurring phrases, the praise of his glorious grace to the praise of his glory for the praise of his glory. The first one is the one that mentions grace for the praise of his glorious grace, the grace of the Father, the love of the Father, the mercy of the Father. It originates with him. So how do I respond to this? God loves me because he sees me in Christ. The answer is, I am in Christ because he loves me. That's why I'm in Christ. He loves me. And so I am in Christ. Think about the cross similarly. John Calvin has a great passage on this in the Institutes. Here's my way of paraphrasing what he says. It is not the cross that secures the love of God for you. It is the love of God for you that secures the cross for you. Why am I a Christian today? I am a Christian today because in the eternal counsel and mystery of God, he loved me, he chose me, he predestined me. It is not something, it is not, my brothers and sisters, something that makes me proud. I will say this with as much pastoral sensitivity and conviction as I possibly can. A reformed Christian who is proud is an impossibility. A reformed Christian, one who embraces this particular doctrine that I am suggesting to you the scriptures teach and who is proud and arrogant is a contradiction. And I want to say this very gently and very carefully, but to the proud, reformed, arrogant Christian who believes that he's got some special card because of his theological convictions, I want to challenge you to examine your own heart. I want to challenge you. And as I look at the faces here, I don't have anybody here in mind, okay? Necessarily. But if even subtly you are inclined to think that I'm of a different kind from my brothers and sisters in Christ around me, I want to suggest to you that's a contradiction in terms and you should check your heart to make sure that you are in Christ at all. To contemplate that I have been loved before the foundation of the world, that I have been chosen, that I have been predestined to be adopted, that's my destination, that's the place God is taking me. And all because of his glorious grace cannot be something that makes me proud, but is supremely humbling. Because I am so utterly and completely and entirely undeserving. And so, why is the Father to be praised? The Father is to be praised because in great mercy and kindness, He chose me. That's number one. He has destined me to be holy and blameless before him, his adopted child bearing the family likeness. And third, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so the son, why is the son to be be praised? I I wish we had two hours 
Why is the Son to be praised? The Son is to be praised because the Father, having conceived this notion that he would redeem sinners from their bondage in sin, commissioned the Son to come into the world to be the Redeemer those sinners needed. And the Son, by the Father's admission, when he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, this is my beloved Son in whom I delight, the Son, because of his insatiable appetite to bring glory to the Father, his insatiable longing to see the Father exalted and glorified in all the earth, the Son's insatiable appetite to see the redemption, the fulfillment of the purpose for which the Father had commissioned him, the salvation of a people because of his insatiable appetite for these things. The Son comes into the world and he does from this text, among many others, three things. He comes, verse 7, to redeem. In him we have redemption through his blood. Really quickly, when we think of redemption, it is right for us to look back at our bondage and to understand that redemption means to be freed by the payment of a price. But when the Bible speaks of redemption, it doesn't think simply of something behind us. It thinks comprehensively. It thinks of the whole story. It takes in the whole scope of salvation. Redemption leads to consummation. Redemption leads beyond the simple deliverance from bondage to the final enjoyment of the promised land. What is it to be redeemed? It is to be delivered from something into something. But second, what is especially significant, especially meaningful, the second thing that Christ does in this text is forgive by his blood, according to the riches of his grace, our trespasses. Our trespasses. Somebody told me one time, that Episcopalians were trespassers because they were landholders and Presbyterians were debtors because they were bankers. If you own the land and somebody crosses the line, they've trespassed. If you're a banker and you own the money and you lend it to somebody, they incur a debt. Come on. A trespasser incurs a debt. We really should pray the Lord's Prayer and say, forgive us our trespasses and our debts because they go together. A trespass is crossing the line. It's stepping over a boundary. In the Scriptures, a trespass is to do anything which falls short of the perfect law of God at any point. That's why I have us read through the Ten Commandments. That's why I want us to do it regularly. I want us to know how big a deal this is that when Jesus came into the world to be our Redeemer, to shed His blood, the life of perfect obedience preceded it. The law of conformity, the the life of conformity to the law of God. Sinlessness. 
so that he by his death on the cross could be a sin-bearing substitute, shedding his blood so that your sins removed from you, having been placed upon him, might be forgiven. All of them. That's why Paul can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Somebody after the service last week, or maybe it was last Sunday evening, said, I just got these voices in my head. And they're constantly condemning me and, and telling me about everything that I've done that's wrong. And I can't ever seem to get peace. I'm, I'm using a bit of hyperbole, but this is a soul in distress. And my guess is there are a few of us in this room who know what that is like. What is the answer to a conscience that screams at you and says, guilty, guilty, guilty? What is the answer to the devil of hell who rises up out of the darkness and assaults you at three o'clock in the morning and parades before you all of your failings? All of your miserable performance as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a human being. What is the answer? It is to say to the devil, you are absolutely right. And then to tell him to go straight back to hell and remind him that in the cross of Christ, every accusation that he has brought against me has been taken away from me and has been given to Christ. And by his shed blood, the whole slate is wiped clean. And in fact, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, the slate is thrown away so there is never even the prospect or possibility that another accusation could be written on it. Gone! Why is the Son to be praised? Because he submitted to the Father's purpose. The Father, Jesus reminds us, tells us in John 17, the Father has entrusted him with the people and he has come into this world as a deliverer, a redeemer by whose shed blood our sins are forgiven and who leads us, verse 10, to the final restoration of all things. What will Jesus do at the end of history? He will unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth and the great division, the first great divorce that occurred after the fall, the separation of the realm of God from the realm of mankind will be reunited and the shalom of God will permeate everything and everything will be united in Jesus. Redemption, forgiveness, and restoration all to the praise of his glory. And why is the Holy Spirit to be praised why is the third person to be praised? He is to be praised because he is a seal and because he is the down payment of the inheritance that is ours. He is a seal. He is a seal. What does it mean to seal something? When a king who possesses all authority in his realm wants to make sure that the citizens of the realm know that he's owner of a particular thing, he puts his seal on that thing. You know, with hot wax and the signet ring, a seal. My dear friends, if you mess around with something sealed by the king, 
you are exposed to all of his authority, all of his power. And Jesus, the King of glory, has sealed you with his spirit. He has put his signet ring upon you. And before principalities and powers in heavenly places, he is saying, by that sealing, this is mine. This belongs to me. Trifle with it at your peril. That's the king of glory who has marked you with his Holy Spirit. And the whole of the heavenly host, things visible and invisible, all witness the king sealing what is his and are warned, do not trifle with what belongs to me. And so you see, at the end of human history, when all of this tribulation and difficulty and heartache and everything else comes to an end, the king will sit upon his throne and he will enter into judgment with the nations and he will vindicate his people and he will say to the nations, I told you not to mess with my seal. And you have, and now you will face my wrath and judgment while I will vindicate my people. And the Holy Spirit is not just an external mark. He is an internal presence. He is a deposit. He is the down payment guaranteeing our final inheritance, the new heaven, the new earth. He is the promise to us that the promise of Jesus will be fulfilled. When Jesus said to his people, don't be afraid, little flock. Don't be afraid. Luke 12, 32. Don't be afraid, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And the earnest of the fulfillment of that promise is the Holy Spirit resident in your life and internal presence guaranteeing your final inheritance. You know... The Holy Spirit is a troublesome person, just very quickly. And let me just suggest to you that when you do something wrong and you feel troubled by that, rejoice. Because that is the Holy Spirit resident within you, reminding you that your Father has made a promise that He's going to fulfill. He's going to give you the kingdom. When you're sorely tempted and you cave in and you think, oh, I've done it again, not a different thing, but the same thing over again, just remember the Spirit troubling you, the Spirit is, an, is a down payment, assuring you of your final inheritance. And when those sweet and sublime moments occur, I referred to it last week, when the veil between the unseen reality and the seen reality grows very, very thin, and you swear you could step across that veil into the very presence of Christ, or you would swear that Christ has stepped through that veil and has embraced you and is speaking to you personally, touching you, loving you, comforting you by His Spirit, that, that is the Holy Spirit. A taste of the glory that awaits you. And he is to be praised for his work. So why do we observe this Trinity Sunday? So that we can celebrate the God of our salvation, Father and Son 
and Holy Spirit, one God, united in purpose, loving you with an everlasting love, a love that will not fail, which explains why Gerhardus Voss could say in making a comment on this love of God, the best evidence that God will never cease loving you lies in that he never began. But he has loved you with an everlasting love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, come hell or high water, come strife, come difficulty, come collapsing economy, come joblessness, come struggles in marriage with children, with other people, whatever. Oh, Lord, would you lift our hearts up above these things that we might be embraced by this everlasting love. You are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.